Hello, this is Big Red for the Big Red for America show. Thank you for joining us for our second episode on our little mini-series on conservatism. Last week, we answered the question, what is conservatism? This week, we look at the history of conservatism from its intellectual founding to almost present day. Thank you for joining me this week as we study the history of conservatism. We'll talk about this a little more next week when we cover the history of progressivism. But before World War II, America was almost exclusively run by progressives. We, this started with Teddy Roosevelt in the early 1900s to Woodrow Wilson in the 19-teens. There was a brief respite in the 1920s, followed by FDR's long tenure as a progressive president. During the tenure of these presidents, we saw the safeguards of our, of our republic degraded or removed. Wilson and FDR expanded the size and scope of the federal government, and particularly the executive branch. They codified and solidified what we would now call the, quote, administrative state. Americans, for the most part, had accepted the larger role of government in their lives. But progressivism was hit hard as the hordes of authoritarian governments came to light. For example, the Nazi party and communism's horrible, tyrannical spread turned off many to the hopes espoused by the progressives. Many Americans were afraid of their ever-growing government, and they wondered if the, these same horrors could happen in America. This is where Russell Kirk enters the scene. He was the intellectual founder of the modern conservative movement. He wrote a book titled The Conservative Mind, and this book, according to The Atlantic, created the modern conservative movement. The Atlantic summarizes his six conservative principles thusly. First, a divine intent as well as personal conscience rules society. Second, traditional life is filled with variety and mystery, while most radical systems are characterized by a narrowing uniformity. Third, civilized society requires ordering classes. Fourth, property and freedom are inseparably connected. Fifth, man must control his will and his appetite, knowing that he is governed more by emotion than reason. And lastly, society must alter slowly. He published his book in 1953, the same year Dwight Eisenhower was elected. The election of Dwight Eisenhower ended decades of progressive dominance in America, but conservatism was by no means a political force yet. Eisenhower was what I would call a progressive light. He greatly extended the welfare policies of the progressives before him. For example, the 1956 Republican platform reads, quote, the record of performance of the Republican administration on behalf of our working men and women goes still further. The federal minimum wage has been raised for more than 2 million workers. Social Security has been extended to an additional 10 million workers and the benefits raised for 6.5 million. The protection of unemployment insurance has been brought to 4 million additional workers. There have been increased workmen's compensation benefits for longshoremen and harbor workers, increased retirement benefits for railroad employees, and wage increases and improved welfare and pension plans for federal employees. So, of course, this is not very conservative at all. But then again, no one was really a quote-unquote conservative. Kirk had started that movement unbeknownst to him less than two years prior to this. Another important step in creating the conservative movement was the foundation of the National Review, by William Buckley in 1955. According to the Heritage Foundation, Buckley thought that conservative victories were, quote, uncoordinated and inconclusive because the philosophy of freedom could not be expanded systematically in the universities and in the media. 
To counter this, he wanted to create a conservative magazine to consolidate conservative thinking. In his first issue, he stated the purpose of the journal to be this, quote, It stands athwart history yelling stop at a time when no one is inclined to do so, or have much patience with those who so urge it, unquote. We can clearly see the conservative principles here espoused by Buckley. He's trying to fight against the unmoored wanderings of social progress and maintaining faith to our founding principles. The New York Times said that the journal had the, quote, reputation as a cradle for conservative intellectuals and the home for the well-mannered debate. The Heritage Foundation said, quote, the National Review then was not simply a journal of opinion, but a political act which, like the publication of Russell Kirk's The Conservative Mind, shaped the modern conservative movement. Now that conservative philosophy was now becoming more mainstream and less academic, we saw true conservative politicians begin to emerge from the Republican Party. The first well-known popular conservative politician was Barry Goldwater of Arizona. He became a senator in 1952 and, quote, he preached the cause of modern conservatism, unquote, and, quote, individualism, the sanctity of private property, and anti-communism, and the dangers of centralized power, unquote. Also, he had, quote, the utmost vigilance and care to keep political power within its proper bounds, unquote. In 1960, he published The Conscience of a Conservative, which became a national bestseller. In 1964, he ran and won the Republican nomination for presidency. But even Republicans weren't ready for a conservative to lead their party. In his acceptance speech, he said, quote, extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice, and moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue, unquote. Unfortunately, this further divided the Republican Party and gave fuel to the Democratic candidate Lyndon B. Johnson, who painted Goldwater as a radical. Unfortunately for Goldwater, JFK's assassination the previous year cemented what would be a sure victory for LBJ. Even though he lost the election, Goldwater served as an archetype for conservative politicians. He believed, quote, my aim is not to pass laws, but to repeal them. He believed in a limited government a staunch difference from LBJ and his, quote, Great Society and FDR's, quote, New Deal. Both saw the explosion and growth of the federal government, with very poor returns on investment. Goldwater created an alternative to big government and a return to our founding ideals, even though America would not act on such ideas until about 15 years later. That brings us to 1980, where Ronald Reagan, a former Democrat-turned-conservative Republican, destroyed incumbent Jimmy Carter in the national election. Reagan carried 44 out of 50 states, 489 electoral votes, and over 8.5 million popular votes. America had spoken, and it had chosen conservatism. Reagan had inherited a broken America. Communism had triumphed in Vietnam. The USSR had overtaken Afghanistan. Iran had stormed the U.S. Embassy and captured U.S. diplomats. Inflation and unemployment had reached record numbers. But Reagan stood with iron resolve and promised that he would restore, quote, the great, confident roar of American progress and growth and optimism, unquote. In his inaugural address, Reagan spoke to conservative values, cementing them as a force to be reckoned with in national politics. He said, quote, in this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem, it is the problem. He continues, from time to time, we have been tempted to believe that society has become too complex to be managed by self-rule. 
that government by an elite group is superior to government for, by, and of the people. But if no one among us is capable of governing himself, then who among us has the capacity to govern someone else? It is my intention to curb the size and influence of the federal establishment and demand recognition of the distinction between the powers granted to the federal government and those reserved to the states or to the people. All of us need to be reminded that the federal government did not create the states, the states created the federal government. Now, so there will be no misunderstanding, is not my intention to do away with government. It is, rather, to make it work with us, not over us, to stand by our side, not ride on our back. Government can and must provide opportunity, not smother it. Foster productivity, not stifle it, unquote. In 1964, when he was campaigning for Barry Goldwater, Reagan repeated these ideas when he said, quote, and this idea the government is beholden to the people, that it has no other source of power except the sovereign people, is still the newest and most unique idea in all the long history of man's relation to man. This is the issue of this election. Whether we believe in our capacity for self-government or whether we abandon the American Revolution and confess that a little intellectual elite in a far distant capital can plan our lives for us better than we can plan for ourselves." Unquote. As president, Ronald Reagan worked tirelessly to decrease the size of the federal government. For example, domestic spending dropped almost 14% during Reagan's first year in office. At the end of his eight-year tenure as president, he had shrunk the size of the federal government by about 5% according to the Cato Institute. Not only had he curbed the size of the federal government, but he also cut taxes for millions of Americans. Tax cuts are now central to many conservative platforms. But perhaps the greatest impact can be seen how he managed a powerful economic recovery. His election started the, quote, Reagan Revolution, which according to the White House, aimed to reinvigorate the American people and reduce the reliance upon government. Reagan had a different approach to economic than his predecessors. Instead of printing money and a huge government welfare system, Reagan's plan of attack was is as described in by Ben Shapiro's book, How to Destroy America on Three Easy Steps, was threefold. First, he wanted to lower taxes, particularly for businesses to encourage investment, growth, and production. Second, he wanted to reduce the regulations that burned businesses and impeded entrepreneurship. Finally, he wanted to stop inflation. This was called Reaganomics. According to Investopedia, Reaganomics, under President Reagan's administration, marginal tax rates decreased, tax revenues increased, inflation decreased, and the unemployment rate fell. Reagan's economic policies produced 14 million new jobs, and the Dow Jones was now up 250% from when he took office. The White House reported, quote, at the end of his administration, the nation was enjoying the longest period of peacetime prosperity without recession or depression. Clearly, a very strong case was built for conservative economics. America showed its support for Reagan and conservatism by re-electing him in 1984 by an even wider margin than in 1980. He carried 49 out of the 50 states and won 17 million popular votes. However, like all humans, and especially politicians, Reagan was by no means perfect. An example of this can be seen in his aggressive defense spending, which blew out the deficit and played part in the continued deficit spending that occurs to this day. The Cato Institute summarizes Reagan's budget thusly, quote, Reagan's failure was that he did not control federal spending growth. By 1989, federal spending was up 69% from 1981. The deficit widened, then narrowed again by the end of the decade. In general, Reagan has had a large positive legacy, with repeated victories over the USSR and communism abroad. He finally rectified the inflation and stagnation that was ravaging the country under Jimmy Carter. He shrunk the size and scope of the federal government, 
which are all positives for conservatism. The Heritage Foundation compares FDR's legacy to Reagan's, but you can see how progressivism and conservatism see humanity in the role of government very differently. They say, quote, just as Roosevelt led America out of a great economic depression, Reagan lifted a traumatized country out of a great psychological depression, induced by the assassinations of JFK and Martin Luther King Jr., and is sustained by the Vietnam War, the scandal of Watergate, and the malaise of Jimmy Carter. Reagan used the same political instruments as Roosevelt, the major address to Congress, and the fireside chat with the people, and the same optimistic, uplifting rhetoric. But although both Roosevelt and Reagan appealed to the best in America, there was a significant philosophical difference between the two presidents. Roosevelt turned to the government to solve the problems of the people, while Reagan turned to the people to solve the problems of government." Unquote. After Reagan's two terms, his vice president, George H.W. Bush, ran as a president and won the election. He ran on a platform of, quote, no new taxes, and was not able to live up to his end of the bargain. He chose to raise taxes instead of cutting spending, and lost after one term to Democrat Bill Clinton. Unfortunately, this has set an ugly precedent for conservatives who cut taxes with no cut in spending, resulting in larger government deficits. Since Democrats are unwilling to cut funding to social safety programs in a perverse attempt to justify a larger government and preserve the fragmented legacy of the New Deal and Great Society. However, conservatism hadn't died yet. Voters rewarded Republicans in 1994 with a majority in both the House, its first majority since 1953, and the Senate. Under Democrat Bill Clinton, Republicans in the House were actually experienced a budget surplus. They also reformed welfare by requiring people to work to receive benefits and limited the amount of time that they could be covered, and this lowered government spending. In doing this, Bill Clinton reflected some conservative values. And in 1996, his State of the Union address, Bill Clinton said, quote, We know big government does not have all the answers. We know that there's a, not a program for every problem. We have worked to give the American people a smaller, less bureaucratic government in Washington, we have to give the American people one that lives within its means. The era of big government is over. Bill Clinton also said, quote, I believe our new smaller government must work in an old-fashioned American way, together with all of our citizens through state and local governments and the workplace in religious, charitable, and civic associations. Our goal must be to enable all our people to make the most of their lives with stronger families, more educational opportunity, economic security, safer streets, a cleaner environment, and a safer world." Unquote. We clearly see some of the conservative pillars we noted in our first episode here. This just shows that conservatism and conservative ideas can cross the political aisle, just as progressivism can. I would not, however, call Bill Clinton a conservative. Rather, I would leave it at that he carried some successful conservative beliefs into his administration and America is better off for it. Bill Clinton was replaced by George W. Bush in the 2000 election, where Bush barely beat Al Gore by one electoral vote in a very controversial and disputed election. George W. was not a conservative either. He was a progressive slash moderate Republican who did cut taxes, but passed horrendous legislation like the Patriot Act that gave the federal government more permission to peer into its citizens' private lives. He created the Department of Homeland Security and the Transportation Security Agency, a laughable example of, quote, security that has a 95% failure rate at catching illegal items on planes. He grew the size and scope of the federal government with the creation of such agencies, and he began a complicated Iraq-Afghanistan conflict, 
and the, quote, war on terrorism. He signed into law Medicare Part D, which includes prescription drug coverage. The Washington Post covered the passage like this, quote, Bush, who defied conservatives in the Republican Party by backing a massive increase in federal program long championed by Democrats, heralded the act as a strengthening of, quote, compassionate government. And this compassionate government or compassionate conservatism is actually a term that sums up George Bush pretty well. Compassionate conservatism often means caving to progressives and abandoning true conservative principles in order to appease those who will never like you no matter what you do. Compassionate conservatism is not actually conservatism, but rather repackaged progressivism that can be sold to conservatives in hopes of obtaining popularity with the leftist media and academia. Conservatism fell far from its peak with Ronald Reagan. It enjoyed a brief revival with Newt Gingrich, who was the House Speaker under Bill Clinton, and was put to pasture by George W. Bush and his compassionate conservatism. After the economic collapse of 2008, progressive Barack Obama was elected, officially ending whatever hope America had for a smaller government. This is the Big Red for Big Red for America show. Thank you for tuning into episode two of our mini-series on conservatism titled The History of Conservatism. Make sure to tune back in next week. Thank you. Did you like what you heard? Make sure to tune in next week for our fresh new podcast. Also, make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Parler, and Getter. Subscribe to our Substack for our sources. Thank you for listening to the Big Red for America show, where the opinions are always right and the facts are always cited.